Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be, now, be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Nearly 60 years and 10 presidents ago, Dwight David Eisenhower was elected as President of the United States. Now, for many people in this room, uh, you uh, knew of Dwight David Eisenhower. Some of you may have even voted for him. But for many others, the only reason you know Eisenhower is you see the little blue signs on the interstates. <laughs> but when he was elected, he was very popular. He was one of the most highly decorated military men in the history of this country. He was the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe. He was a man of great integrity. And though Adlai Stevenson was a formidable opponent, when Eisenhower was elected, he was elected with 55% of the popular vote and 98% of the Electoral College. He blew Stevenson away. But the campaign was not a cakewalk for Ike. Near the end of it, uh, there was a reporter who broke a story that Dwight David Eisenhower was never baptized. And it was uh, a scandal. I mean, they, he got a lot of press on that. They were hammering him on his lack of baptism. And so he, he issued a statement that said this, It is quite true I've never been baptized, though I've always considered myself a Christian. I promised to do so after the election. And so 12 days after his inauguration, on February 1st, 1953, Dwight David Eisenhower was baptized at the National Presbyterian Church in Northwest D.C. He personally invited over 100 leaders of countries from around the world to come. And more than 100 came. And in his letter of invitation, he said this, It will be the day that I nail down my faith. He's the first and only sitting president of the United States that was baptized as president of the United States. We've come a long way. <laughs> it was nailed down for Ike. Sixteen years later, he lay in the medical center at Walter Reed, and he was dying, and he knew it. And so he summoned Billy Graham, and Billy Graham came to his bedside, and he said to Graham, Billy, I've known you for years. I've heard the gospel for all my life. Could you just tell me the gospel one more time? And for the next 20 minutes, Billy Graham shared with the president, the former president, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Billy was done, Eisenhower looked him in the eye and said, Billy, thank you. I can die on that. And in three hours, he did. 
Now, Matthew writes that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, that word repentance is used in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures over a hundred times. And yet, this is the first time it's used in the New Testament. Matthew uses that word in chapter 3 after he's talked about the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the death of two-year-olds. Before he gives us any details about Jesus' ministry, he talks about the baptism of repentance. In fact, this incident in Jesus' life is one that is profiled by all four gospel writers. And there's only a few incidents in Jesus' life that are profiled by all gospel writers. And the reason is clear. In his baptism, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus is nailed down. So let's look at it. First of all, notice, if you will, the prompting. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Now, the operative word there is then. Someone has said in his childhood to the Jordan, Jesus lived in hiding. It was as if he was buried alive. But after a long, dark night, the Son of Righteousness rises in glory. Now, consider the confluence of events here. Years earlier, his cousin John has left the populated centers of Galilee and he's gone to the northwest shoreline of the Dead Sea to a place called Qumran where there are a group of men known as the Essene. The Essene believed that the world was corrupt, that the Pharisees had corrupted the, the faith of their fathers, they were more interested in the Essenes' view in political power than in divine blessing. And so these men retreat into a commune at a place called Qumran. And there they devote themselves to rigorous spiritual discipline. They rise every morning before dawn. They devote themselves to daily and ritualistic worship and purification. They see the world around them as totally corrupt, a bastion of Satan's power, and yet they see the end of that power as very near. And interestingly, in order to become a full-blown Essene, you had to submit yourself to three years of instruction, of purification, of chance, of fasting, of prayer, and it culminated in a private baptismal service. You couldn't be a true Essene unless you had been baptized privately by members of that group. And it's thought that John had been baptized. He was a full-blown Essene, he was a, a member of this commune, this rigorous, disciplined, spiritual group. And yet Matthew says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. Then when? When the Holy Spirit prompted John to leave the northwest shoreline of the Dead Sea 
and travel north at least 20 miles to the Jordan River and there engage the world. Now, only the Holy Spirit could have done that. Only the Holy Spirit could have changed the heart of John to get him from being an isolated rabble-rouser to being one who is willing to call others to abandon themselves to repentance. He determines to call the people of Israel to repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near, he said. And interestingly, when John gets to the Jordan and begins to preach, Jesus leaves Nazareth and travels south and east to the Jordan to meet up with John. You say, how did Jesus know to go? And the answer is simple. The Holy Spirit told him. You say, but how did the Holy Spirit tell him? The Holy Spirit told him the same way the Holy Spirit tells us the majority of things that he tells us, through his word. Jesus knew Malachi chapter 3. And in there, the Lord says, Behold, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. Jesus knew there would be a forerunner to the Messiah's ministry, and Jesus knew when he heard what John was preaching that John was that forerunner. And so Jesus comes and joins John. The Holy Spirit prompts John. The Holy Spirit prompts Jesus. The Holy Spirit's prompting, prompting the people. And second, notice not only the promptings, notice the promise. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now Matthew's told us that John would have prevented Jesus from being baptized, but Jesus said, No, let us do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now the teachers of Israel said that if the people of God could repent perfectly for even one day the Messiah would come. They taught that. If the people of Israel could repent, if just for one day the Messiah would come. The rabbis used to say it this way, return to God as far as you can and God will come the rest of the way. But notice this. Jesus goes all the way. Matthew writes, when the people hear John the Baptist, they went out to him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit prompts them to go. You see, the teachers of Israel were right. If God's people could see perfect repentance, perfect repentance, even for one day, the Messiah would come. What they didn't understand was that perfect repentance that they needed to see was going to be in Jesus rather than them. 500 years before Christ, the word baptized was a business term. It described a process of dyeing fabric. If you had a piece of white fabric and wanted to have it dyed purple, you would go to a man known as a baptizer. 
So let's say you're in Rome. You have a white piece of fabric. You want it to be blue. You go to Brutus the Baptizer. (laughs) You say, how much to change this fabric to blue? And remember, the deeper the dye color, the more expensive it is. So the dyer would be called the Baptist. His job was to change the identity of the fabric. His job was to change the value of fabric, light color to dark color. And in large measure, that's what John's calling the people of Israel to do. He's calling them to change their minds. He's calling them to forsake their ways. But notice when Jesus gets to that river, the change is greater than that. Jesus' identity has changed. It's not just his mind that's changed. He goes from the son of Joseph to the son of man. John baptizes Jesus, but truly it's the Holy Spirit who baptizes him. The people see John taking him out into the river, but Jesus sees more than that. He sees the Holy Spirit of God taking him into the river, for he will change his identity. Third, notice the point. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. There's an old story about an old preacher that was uh, down in the, I always think of him in uh, West Virginia in the hollers. I don't know if he was or not, but that's what I imagine in my mind. He's down in the hollers. And he's preaching, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's calling people to repentance and to come to be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so these people gather by the river. They've converted to Christianity, and they're going to be baptized. And there's an old guy on the side of the road, and he's looking at all of this, and he sees this old, wiry man who's come to be baptized. And he said, hey, preacher, I don't want to interrupt you, but you need to know that old man's an old sinner. When you get him in the river, you better hold him down extra long. In fact, you might want to dunk him more than... No, on second thought, why don't you just anchor him out there in deep water overnight? (laughs) Now, if the water is what cleanses us, that man's right. But nowhere in Scripture... Does the Bible talk about water cleansing us? It requires the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. So notice what Matthew says. As soon as Jesus gets in the water, he comes up out of it, and the heavens open. He doesn't stay down very long. He comes right up out of the water. And let me ask you a question. How is it that the heavens open? What causes the heavens to open? Is it the repentance of the sinners? No. Is it the willingness of men to submit to baptism? No. The heavens hadn't opened. There's no indication that the heavens had opened when the people had repented or when they had been baptized. You know what opens heaven? It's the righteousness of Jesus. You see, the focus of John's baptism was on the sinner. The focus of Jesus' baptism is on the Savior. 
It's not the sinner's righteousness that opens heaven. It's the righteousness of another. And that's why infant baptism is so profound in my mind. Because it's nothing to do with the baby. It's everything to do with Jesus. In Vienna, there's an old cathedral where guards would bring a whole host of people uh, to gather around for the burial of a king. And when the royal procession would make its way to the massive doors of the cathedral, one of the chief guards would knock on those doors and, and ask for entrance. And the priest inside would shout, Who is it that desires to be admitted? And the guard would shout, His Royal Highness. And the priest would shout, I don't know him. <laughs> A minute or two would go by and the guard would knock on the door again and the priest would say, Who desires to be admitted? And the guard would say, His Majesty the King. And the priest would say, I don't know him. A few minutes would go by and the guard would knock again and the priest would say, Who desires to be admitted? And the guard would say, A poor, wretched sinner, your brother. And immediately the doors would open and the casket of the king would roll in. You see, the main point to Jesus' baptism is not our righteousness or our repentance. It's Jesus' righteousness. And you know how long His righteousness keeps heaven's door open to us? Until the final sinner that He's elected to grace has come in. When Jesus' righteousness opens the doors of heaven, they never close until his work is done. And then fourth and finally, notice the preeminence. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now the Greek says it this way. This is my beloved Son with whom I have found delight. Notice the verb tense. It's not this is my beloved Son in whom I will find delight. It's past tense. I found delight. It's done. It's fixed. The word delight literally means to approve. Now, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to prove that. What proves God's approval of Jesus? The Holy Spirit. He descends on him to confirm the words that John had uttered earlier, the one who follows me, I'm not worthy to stoop and untie his shoes, for he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now think of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. He conceives him. He teaches him. He prompts him. And now he descends on him. Now, do you realize the difference that makes in your life if you're a Christian? When people were baptized by John, they'd get out of the water, they'd dry themselves off, and as soon as they were dry, it was over. I mean, they had repented as best they could. They, they had been washed. 
And they were good to go. They were good to receive the kingdom of heaven as long as no dirt got on them, but as soon as they sinned, it was over. They needed to be washed again. But when the heavens open and the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I approve, that approval never ends because the one who washes him descends on him and rests on him forever. He's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, you are too. The Bible says if we're found in him, everything he has gained for us is ours forever. Everything the Holy Spirit confirms that day, he confirms in your life. Jesus' righteousness, his empowerment, and the approval of the Heavenly Father, and that never ends. You say, but I'm a sinner. I know. <laughs> you say, no, but I mean, I still sin. I know. You say, but, but I stand in constant need of repentance. That's right, so do I. And that's why we should be so thankful that all the benefits of his baptism don't depend on you or me. They depend on him. Seventy years ago in Germany, there was a man by the name of Martin Hellriegel. And Martin was the pastor of a confessing church. That meant he was a part of a church that stood in opposition to the Third Reich, to Nazi oppression. They preached Christ and him crucified. Every day, Martin wondered whether that day would be his last day. The threats on his life were myriad. And so one day in deep depression, in his prayer time, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord prompts him to go back to the town where he was raised. And go back to that church where he was baptized. And so under the cover of night, he makes his way back to that little village. It's the church where he had been raised. It's the church where he had received his call. It's the church where he had been baptized. And in the deep wee hours of the night, he gets to that church and he quietly opens the door. And he walks down the center aisle, and he comes to this little chancel where there's this wooden font in the top of which is a basin of water. And he takes the lid of that font off, and he stares into that water. And as he gazes at it, he, rem he, he imagines what it was like for his parents to bring him as an infant to that same point, that same place. He imagines the pastor taking him up in his arms and pouring water over his head. He imagines what that was like. And suddenly his knees buckle and he falls to the floor. He begins to weep. 
because he recognizes at that instant that is where his identity was fixed. Even though he didn't know anything of what was going on, he immediately recognized that what, is, what happened when he was an infant was confirmed later in his life. He's overwhelmed with the conviction that this is the place where everything Jesus ever accomplished was nailed down in his life. And there in his tears, he finds himself repeating words of another Martin, Martin Luther, who at the height of his own discouragement began to cry out with tears, I've been baptized. I've been baptized. And suddenly the tears stop. He puts his hand on the wooden font and begins to sort of shimmy his way to his feet. Then he turns and he walks down the aisle. And he opens the door. And there in front of him is a militia of Nazis with machine guns who arrest him. And months later, they murder him. You say, how could God permit such a thing? One minute basking in the righteousness of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the next minute facing your mortal enemy. How could God allow that? He did it for Jesus. The very next sentence says, Jesus was driven or led into the wilderness of temptation face Satan. It happened to Ike, Billy Graham. Billy, just tell me one more time the gospel. And then he says to Billy, thanks, Billy. I can die on that. And in three hours he does. You see, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord brought each of them to the place where they could say, I can die on that. Can you? Or are you still trusting in yourself? Still trusting in your own repentance? It's not good enough. It is true. If the people of God could perfectly repent, even for one day, the Messiah would come. Jesus came because he had all the righteousness God ever desired and ever demanded, and we are found in him. You know what? You can die on that, and you can live on that. Think about that. Amen. 